This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight we have three wonderful speakers that I'm very pleased to introduce. We're going to be hearing from Dr. Faraz Faroz uh, Tarapur, who is an assistant professor of neurosurgery at Zuckerberg San Francisco General, and uh, from a patient, Mr. Peter Radovich, and his wife, Jennifer Steger, um, who will be telling you all their story um, and about the journey uh, becoming a patient and uh, living with a traumatic brain injury. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jennifer Steger. I'm Peter's wife. Um, I'm going to introduce just the the slight moment before uh, and uh, the time during his accident um, and a little bit through the emergency care because that's a phase of the injury of which Peter has no memory. Uh, And then Dr. Terapur is going to pick up um, at a certain stopping point with more technical uh, material. And then my husband, Peter, will talk about um, his experience of his injury from the time that he does remember it. Um, this is his super cute I heart neurosurgery hat, which was gifted to him by uh, one of the neurosurgical nurse practitioners uh, with whom he worked. This is a picture of our family uh, the year before the accident. Um, we had been living a fairly uh, unconventional but uh, by physical standards, fairly normal life. We'd been traveling for five years while I was researching and writing my dissertation, and my husband, who works in technology, was able to be flexible so that we could do that. Um, And we left San Francisco uh, with one small child, and we returned just before his accident with three. Um, They were each born in a different city. Uh, And the year before we came back to San Francisco, we were living in L.A. in a sort of Melrose Place-style complex for art people um, that's part of the Getty's postdoctoral research program uh, in which I was participating. Uh, And this uh, picture, which is one of those, like, photo booth things uh, that they set up from the Getty Villa Pompeii Family Festival, um, was what we brought to the hospital when Peter was in the... Uh, trauma ICU, they asked us to bring some family pictures, and this was what we brought, um, which I think conveys both somewhat the style of our family, though they don't normally dress in identical sweaters, um, and also some of the humor that we wanted to bring to the hospital context. Um, And then I think we were actually successful in creating uh, a somewhat special environment in Peter's room, even though it was windowless uh, and in part of a trauma ICU. Um, So this photograph... Uh, It's just sort of an indicator of what our life was like before uh, Peter's accident. And the other thing that it draws out for me is that just before we took the photo, I had been in my office with our smallest child, who was an infant, working. And Peter had been, uh, in the modern way, uh, co-parenting and taking uh, our other two children through the festival. Um, A festival like this is very noisy, chaotic, with lots of different projects. It's something that would be very, very hard for him to do now, um, but was a very normal part of his weekend parenting life uh, at that time. So that sort of co-parenting and co-sharing is something that I feel is harder for us to do uh, in the aftermath. Um, these are some photos that we took the day before the accident. We had moved back to San Francisco. Uh, we were exploring our uh, renewed home. Um, this is just at the California Academy of Sciences. They had a big reindeer festival, and we went there for the weekend, um, for on, the, on the weekend, the day before his accident. Uh, and then on Monday, he went to work, um, and his last memory is of meeting a new colleague who's still a friend of ours who had joined that day, his office, um, 
And, uh, and then he came home and we had been kind of consolidating all of the stuff from our travels and um, trying to reduce the number of things that we had in our small San Francisco apartment. Um, and we offered this bureau to our neighbor and they, the guy said, sure, he would love it. And so he and his family came over and we're all still friends. Um, and they decided they were going to try to move it. Um, it was one of those things our kids have asked us many times since, like, why didn't you get a mover? Um, the truth is nobody gets a mover to move one piece of furniture that seems like it can be easily carried. Um, what we hadn't really thought through was the stairwell situation in San Francisco is often very precarious in older buildings, um, and there wasn't a railing on the landing. Um, so Peter seems to have, to the best of our knowledge, what he, he took the front end of the bureau, the friend took the back, um, and what we next heard, all of us, was the sound of the bureau smashing to the pavement. Um, we rushed out, and it actually took a moment to realize that while he hadn't been hit by the bureau, Peter was not getting up from the ground. Um, I remember hearing the bureau, seeing it, having a reaction to that, and then realizing that Peter hasn't stood up. Um, and uh, luckily, there was a man across the street um, running a bicycle fix-it shop out of a garage, um, and he was very calm called uh, 911 before the rest of us had finished the kind of screaming and face-slapping phase. Um, but at the time, Peter was totally unresponsive, um, and his eyes were frozen up to the side. It's a very clear picture for me in my head. And, uh, and he was bleeding onto the sidewalk, and our children were trying to staunch the blood, as were the friends. Um, the person on the other end of the uh, 911 call was very helpful in trying to calm us and help us uh, do some things to keep Peter's breathing, which seemed to be diminishing and was very labored and loud uh, going. And um, we lived at the time, so the, the accident itself is one of those mundane activities that just goes wrong and is um, very unlucky. Uh, but what was lucky in the aftermath was how quick we were able to get emergency care. Um, and one reason for that was that we lived only three blocks from SF, uh, Zuckerberg SF General Hospital, had yet to be renamed three years ago. Uh, and I remember thinking, would it be faster just to run down there? Because even though the response was so fast, um, it seemed like it, couldn't, it might not be fast enough. Um, and so I don't know what Peter's prognosis today would have been like had he not received emergency care so quickly. Um, but it was to the point where I was mentally debating the run, and then we could hear the sirens start up, and we knew that they were coming. Um, and the EMTs were, were excellent, efficient, uh, and very calm. And uh, one thing I remember is they said to me, and this would never have occurred to me, uh, in the moment of acute panic is we can see that you have a lot of children here um, and it would be best if you could put them to sleep before you come down to the hospital. You're not going to be able to see him for a while anyway. So if you put them to bed, um, then they won't have to be down at the hospital, which is kind of a crazy scene. I don't know if any of you have been at the SF General Hospital, but it is a very intense environment. <laughs> Um, so I was very grateful for that. When I did get down there myself, I was able to have a friend come stay with them. And uh, somewhat shockingly, they did go right to sleep. I don't know if they were just so scared that they fell asleep uh, or uh, if that's a natural response to stress. But they went to sleep, and I was able to go down to the hospital uh, with my brother, who also lives in the city and had come over. Uh, and I was met by a social worker. And I remember thinking immediately, well, he must be dead. Because why would a social worker be meeting me? Uh, although I know now that that is a very standard practice um, in that kind of an emergency. Uh, so it was a little while before we could see him. Uh, we were all in the waiting room, including the friend who'd been moving the bureau. Uh, but eventually we were let into the ICU to see him when I took this picture. Uh, I remember that the nurse at the time, and Peter had a series of very, very 
uh, incredible nurses, many of whom we got to know over the course of the month. Uh, I didn't see this particular person again, but I remember him looking very anxious when I whipped out a camera. Um, and I can imagine why that <laughs> seemed uncomfortable to him. Uh, but I said he's going to want to know what he looked like. Um, and I could tell at the moment that it, where things were so liminal, this was before he had had a craniotomy, um, or before it was even clear he would need a craniotomy, um, after the emergency response, but before any major interventions where they were just monitoring him. You know, I think it was a legitimate uh, question for the nurse whether there would be someone to show the photograph to. Uh, but he let me take it. Um, he kind of closed the curtain so that it wouldn't be obvious to other people. Um, and I'm glad that we have it today because it is helpful uh, for us uh, as a family um, certainly as the parents in the family, to look and see uh, how far things have come. Sometimes when it seems very hard, it's particularly helpful to see that there has been so much improvement. I um, thought I'd taken this slide out, <laughs> but this is my hand wearing Peter's wedding ring. Uh, one of the nurses took it off, and it seemed like a big deal to me at the time because I had once lost both my wedding and engagement ring, and it was, that was a big deal to Peter. He was very angry, and he told me that he never, ever took off his wedding ring. Uh, but they were concerned that his hand was swelling beyond uh, the amount that was safe to leave the ring on, and there was one nurse who was known in the ICU as especially skilled at getting rings off. Um, and so he worked on it over the course of the night and then passed this to me, which I wore uh, until Peter was able to put it back on himself. Um, this is uh, December 17th, 2013. Um, so post-craniotomy, uh, and I think it looks like he's not intubated anymore. Dr. Terraper? Yeah, so getting some oxygen, but no longer uh, with a tube all the way down. Uh, and this was his like cleaned up look at that part. Um, he had to stay in the ICU for a while while we were waiting to see um, if his um, cerebral spinal fluid levels would stabilize. These were not words with which I was familiar before this accident, um, but you learned fast in the ICU. Um, and we had a friend, actually Peter's ex-girlfriend, he's a very good friend, had made, um, he had a windowless room. So she made a set of, um, what's the word, music playlists. Thank you. Two Spotify playlists. You can still find them on Spotify called Peter Heals Day and Night. Um, and the idea was we could play the music um, to give him a sense of the changing of the day and the night because it was otherwise unavailable to him. The lighting's a bit like this spotlight in the, um, in the ICU. Uh, and if you don't have a window, he eventually graduated to a room with a window, um, but that was very late in the month. Uh, so for a while, we were using music to try to create a different environment for him in his, uh, in his room um, during the day and the night. And also, a, a side effect of that was it made it a comfortable space to, cut, to gather. So I noticed um, that nurses would come and hang out a little bit to listen to the music. And actually, one of the nurses told me she had tried to find the musician, Peter Heels, because <laughs> she really liked the playlist. Um, but that kind of connection, especially when you're going to have an extended stay, um, for me was very important uh, as someone who likes uh, social connections, especially um, a number of months after rehab, I did bring Peter back to the trauma ICU, and we had completely different experiences of the visit. I was like, and that's where you were for this week? Oh, and there's your nurse. And he was like, I don't remember any of this. So it was a very odd uh, moment of return. Um, 
This is one uh, slightly uncomfortable aspect of being in the ICU. Um, a lot of uh, patients, despite their extreme health situations, have, need to be restrained so that they don't pull out their own tubes. They seem to have some kind of superhuman strength in this moment. Uh, despite the boxing glove style mitts and being tied to the side of the bed, Peter pulled out his feeding tube four times, uh, and eventually they decided not to reinsert it. Um, and towards the end of the stay, he actually pulled out the monitor uh, from his, that was monitoring his cerebral spinal fluid levels called an EVD. Um, and again, once it was pulled out, they were able to establish that he was stable without it in. <laughs> so uh, that was part of what allowed him to get an MRI and uh, be discharged to the neuro ICU at UCSF. So we actually came from the general to Parnassus. It was part of Peter's three hospital tour in the city. Um, one thing that I've reflected on is that a lot of people um, in the medical community and as people participants in it um, are bringing their own personal experience to uh, their professional work. And Peter had one nurse who had been hospitalized for an extensive amount of time as a child. Uh, and she was very concerned about our own children and what their experience of Peter's injury was going to be. Um, so the last they had seen him was on the pavement, completely um, unconscious and bleeding, uh, and so she invited me to bring them, even though they were quite young, and there's sort of a no under 12 rule in general, to, um, to the general. Um, and she prepared him. Initially, she had him in a special seat. Um, she made sure that his sedation was low at the time that they were there so that he could be somewhat animated. Um, at this time, he wasn't able to speak uh, very audibly but um, he could engage, and he was very motivated. They, they said that he was often very motivated by these goofy pictures of his children that were taped to the side of the bed. Um, he was very excited to, by their visit. I think they were a little overwhelmed, but also happy to see that he was alive. Uh, and my younger son, who's my middle child, was especially fixated on the cerebral spinal fluid that was dripping out of his head into a bag, uh, which he said looked a lot like pee, which is true. <laughs> um, and uh, I can also say that the nurses in this situation um, are, are really living the Hippocratic Oath, and that was visible to us as patients um, in the ICU. And at the time that the children came to visit, the patient next door to Peter was threatening his nurse with um, death and was very angry because she had not called him a, an attorney. Um, and it was, uh, it was amazing to see that she was treating him with as much uh, empathy and care um, as she was treating uh, my husband, who was not threatening her at the time. <laughs> um, so Peter was discharged to UCSF to the neuro ICU. So it's still an ICU, but not... Um, not a trauma one and not uh, at the general. And we thought that this was like a spa because it was so quiet um, and has comparatively, I think, fewer brain injuries probably coming through it. So slightly different type of ICU. Um, I'm going to try to play this video. You have to get it right on the word. I love you. And then you guys can make Papa a video too, okay? Give me a kiss. Do a bigger kiss. There you go. Uh, so that was the level at which Peter was able to make himself heard. He actually remembered all of his vocabulary. He wasn't missing any vocabulary after the accident, but it was very hard for him. And sometimes when he's fatigued, it's still hard for him to um, to 
verbalize, uh, to vocalize very strongly. So that was kind of, for him, a big speaking effort right there, um, making a video for our kids. Um, he doesn't have any memory of this time still. Um, this is still at UCSF, still in the neuro ICU. Um, that's his older brother who came to visit. Um, and I was surprised to find, uh, after a month of... Uh, uh, post-accident life that his brother was able to bring something I wasn't. He, they spent a lot of this time, again, which Peter doesn't remember, uh, telling each other fart jokes and other <laughs> brotherly, fraternal forms of humor uh, that were not available to me in my caregiving. Uh, so it was, it, was a, it was a lovely visit, but I think it's totally mysterious to my uh, brother-in-law that something that was very intense for him, Peter doesn't remember at all, uh, even now, though I think he's grateful that his brother was able to come. Um, and then on his way to CPMC, to the brain injury rehab unit, where he spent, uh, I think, seven weeks as an inpatient, uh, he went to the UCSF step-down unit, so that's when you get out of the ICU um, and into a sort of transitional unit, and there they began the process of trying to uh, rehabilitate some of the things that he had lost. Um, and this is a video, um, I'll probably cut it off a little bit, but it's the first time where he's really trying uh, to walk again, and he has three attendants. So um, two on one on each side, and there's a person behind him too. Yeah. Can you look up towards your right? So get a video of you. Look your head. Heads are heavy. We don't want to look at the floor. Okay, we can we can keep going straight. We got a nice clear hallway here. That's our daughter. So they had him do a tour of the hall, uh, and there was a moment where I was back, I was walking backwards while he was practicing uh, this walk, where he has three people keeping him stable, right? Otherwise, he would have fallen to one side or the other and not actually have been able to walk. Um, and he, he was trying to say something, and they didn't know what he was trying to say uh, for a while, like, oh, do you need a seat? No, he was trying to ask me uh, to look out for the chair that was behind me. Um, so one thing uh, that comes up a lot is, you know, do people have personality changes? Certainly they can with brain injury, and yes, there are aspects of Peter which are uh, different, but one uh, area for which I'm very grateful and which I had no idea, you know, how, how it would play out is that his, his intellectual life is very intact, um, and also his... Um, just sort of personal style. I mean, even when he was being transferred from uh, the general hospital to UCSF, he's on a gurney, and people are you know, moving the gurney towards the ambulance, and he kept trying to hold the door <laughs> from the gurney. And they were like, no, 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 this isn't your time to do that. Um, but I remember it was, it was funny to all of us, but it was also very sweet. Um, and I'm going to stop there and let Peter pick up after Dr. Terrapore with um, some of his experience in the rehabilitation unit where he does remember... Um, and have some things to say. Thank you. That was incredible. Uh, I don't often get to hear in this much detail um, what the experience of our patients is like. Uh, and so this was particularly special for me to get to hear your perception of everything that went on. Um, we have a perception. I, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the feeding tube thing because I remember Peter as the guy that pulled out his feeding tube four times and then we gave up and stopped putting it back in. But, um, you know, we have such a different perspective and it's such a clinical perspective. And um, uh, 
I, I remember the day when your kids came in. That was the talk of the hospital and the talk of the unit that day. Um, but, uh, you know, those are very short vignettes amidst a sea of, like, clinical data and, and things like that. So thanks for sharing that much in, in that much detail. So I'm uh, uh, Feroz Tarapur. I'm a professor of uh, neurosurgery. Uh, I'm on uh, staff here at, in the Department of Neurosurgery at UCSF, and I practice at SF General Hospital half the time, and I practice at the San Francisco Veterans Association Hospital the other half of the time. So I um, studiously avoid practicing at UCSF where uh, there's no trauma and there are no veterans because I love taking care of people with trauma and people who are veterans. Um, and, uh, you know, I was asked today to give a, a, a bit of an overview about what we do in uh, neurotrauma and then also to try and focus it in on the case that we are so lucky to hear about today. So I'm going to just start very broad from the 30,000-foot perspective, and then I'm going to kind of give a general overview of the land of traumatic brain injury. What is traumatic brain injury? What are the types of traumatic brain injury? And what do we do about traumatic brain injury? So as with all medical lectures, we have to start with anatomy. Anatomy is the key to everything. So uh, neuroanatomy, um, we're talking about the brain, which is at the top there, and the spinal cord, which is below that. Uh, We divide up the brain, the spinal cord, uh, into central nervous system, which refers to the brain and the spinal cord specifically, and the peripheral nervous system, which refers to the nerves and the neural elements as soon as they exit the uh, brain or the spine. Um, That's what a brain looks like, having uh, once it's been taken out and and, uh, placed in formaldehyde for some weeks. And we divide the brain up into uh, four large outer lobes and uh, a couple of more inner lobes. So we have the frontal lobe here in the front. Go figure. Um, We have the parietal lobe, which is up here in the back, one on each side. Occipital lobe is down here way in the back. And then the temporal lobes are on the side. Uh, That kind of fuzzy-looking structure there at the bottom is called the cerebellum. And that is uh, important for tasks such as balancing and organizing movements. Um, I'm going to get into a little bit more of the specifics of um, your injury uh, because, you know, it's very uh, very interesting and predictable how a patient will behave and what kinds of problems a patient will have based upon what uh, what part of the brain has been injured. So we'll get back to that a little later. Um, we made reference to a craniotomy before. How many people here know what a craniotomy is? Anybody? So about like a third. So craniotomy, a.k.a. brain surgery. Okay. So what do we do with a craniotomy? So a craniotomy, if we break it up, uh, everything in medicine comes from Latin. So cranio refers to cranial, so head. And otomy refers to making a hole or making a window in it. So it's making a hole in the head. Um, It refers, it's sort of the general term that we use to encompass all neurosurgical procedures that have to do with entering the cranial vault, entering the skull. Uh, How do we do it? We um, usually make some sort of a skin incision, just like we've done here. This is kind of a U-shaped flap over the left side of the head. Um, Peter's injury was on the right. Uh, So flip everything around to make it uh, apropos for this case. But we flap the, the skin down. And then using a drill 
Uh, it's kind of a side-cutting drill, if you think of it kind of as a router with a foot plate on it. And we hook that underneath the bone, and then we basically just use it to uh, route a, uh, a, a window in the skull. So once we route that window in the skull, we remove that, that, that flap of bone here. It's, it's a nice uh, pentagon-shaped uh, window in the skull. Underneath that is the dura. The dura is kind of a leathery, hard sack that is over the, over the brain. And inside of the dura is the spinal fluid, and inside the spinal fluid is the brain itself. So the brain is constantly floating in a sea of spinal fluid, which is contained within this outer sac of dura. The reason why the brain needs to float is that the brain itself is heavy. And if it were not floating in spinal fluid, it would crush itself under its own weight. So in order to suspend the brain and to make it more, uh, more stable, it, it is bathed and, and, and uh, buoyant in the sea of spinal fluid. Uh, once we have done whatever it is that we're doing underneath the bone, we put the bone flap back with small titanium plates and screws, and then we close up the skin. This is the same kind of, an, uh, of a uh, picture from a different perspective. It's a little bit more of an anatomical drawing. Here you can see that the uh, uh, craniotomy has been performed over the right side, kind of right over here, right over the eye socket. And you can see uh, how that would give us access to kind of the side of the frontal lobe. Um, I'm going to show some intraoperative, some surgical pictures as well. Um, so there, it's not a ton of blood, but it's, you know, it's normal human tissue. Um, so if that bothers you, I apologize, and I won't take any offense if people want to close their eyes or step out. Um, but this is a picture of what we see in a surgery. This is a patient that we took care of who had a traumatic brain injury. Uh, he had a terrible amount of brain swelling, and you can actually see uh, that the brain surface, these blood vessels on the surface of the brain are really large and red and very angry looking. That's not what a brain normally looks like. A brain normally has a pretty calm appearance with a, a fine spider web of red vessels on it. This is a very angry, red looking brain. Uh, so this was, this, that was the result of the trauma. This is a much more normal looking brain. And here what I've done is, uh, this is actually a, a, a picture that I took during a, a surgery for removal of a brain tumor. So this brain looks normal. I've overlaid it with a, uh, an image of the vessels of the brain, and you can kind of see in the white and gray picture here what the, uh, uh, what the vessels, uh, where the vessels are and how they correspond to that image. But that's a pretty normal-looking picture of a brain. Okay, so traumatic brain injury. So, near and dear to my heart. 1.7 million TBIs in the United States. 75% of these are mild, a.k.a. concussions and slightly more complicated than, con than concussions. But that's a lot of people. That's one in 250 people. Um, a very, very small number of these folks will survive in a permanent vegetative state, meaning they are alive but are not interactive at all. Um, the medical costs are staggering, $70 billion of direct and indirect medical costs per year just in the United States from TBI. 
Uh, it results in 1.1 million emergency room visits, 373,000 hospitalizations, and 60,000 deaths per year. Uh, so TBI is far more common than cancer. It's far more common than um, heart attacks in certain age populations. And it really affects people across the age spectrum, whether you're young or old. Um, a lot of fall-related traumatic brain injuries, um, a lot of motor vehicle-associated brain injuries, and uh, a fair number of assault-related injuries. So this is a, is a disease type that is uh, equal opportunity, if you will. If you look at the breakdown by age, this is a disease that affects everybody, but it primarily affects um, the young and the old. So if you look at um, here the, the uh, number of people that have TBIs as a result of assault, so this, that's the red line. You're seeing a pretty solid number of people. So we're talking about 125 per 100,000 uh, in the population having um, an assault-related TBI, and that's sort of from the 18 to 35 age range. And then things quiet down for a little bit while we enter you know, uh, a, a relatively more peaceful and boring part of our lives and not engaging in all kinds of reckless behavior. Uh, and then we start getting older, and suddenly the falls pick up. And once you pass 65 uh, and get into the 75-plus category, the number of TBIs goes way up again. So TBI is a huge problem in the elderly. Um, the United States has a burgeoning elderly population, people over the age of 65. And uh, TBI in this population is a, is a real double whammy. So what happens is, as we get older, we all naturally become a little bit less steady and a little bit less able to react quickly to a change in balance or a change in our environment. And so we slip and fall. And unfortunately... Uh, as we get older, the brain is less and less and less capable of compensating for an existing injury. So uh, one of the predominant predictors of how somebody will do after a TBI is just how old they were when the TBI happened. So uh, anyone want to guess what the age cutoff is in uh, quote-unquote old people for TBI? Who thinks it's over 65 it's definitely over 65. Who thinks it's over 55? 45? 40? 35? 25? Who's not going to guess? Uh, the cutoff is 40. So if you're over 40, you nailed it. You really did learn a lot in the ICU. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, so the cutoff is 40. So... Um, uh, after the age of 40, it seems that people respond uh, much more poorly to uh, a, a traumatic brain injury, and their capacity for recovery uh, falls off very quickly. Um, in comparison, a 5-year-old or an 8-year-old can have a massive traumatic brain injury and can recover to the point where they're virtually normal. Um, in neurosurgery, we know that uh, before the age of about one and a half or maybe two, you can actually surgically remove half of a child's brain 
and they will grow up to be totally normal. So I'll say that again. Half the child's brain gone, filled up with spinal fluid, empty space in the head, and they grow up to be normal. That means they don't have any asymmetry in their arm movements or their leg movements. They can walk, talk, eat, sleep, cry, learn, function normally. Hand up. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very fair question. Um, it, so we know this because in certain very severe forms of epilepsy, uh, where a child is incapacitated by seizures to the point where they are not going to have any sort of a future, uh, the final form of treatment is actually removal of half of the child's brain, uh, ideally the half that is causing the seizures. And uh, so, you know, in, initially, surgeons would tell the parents, look, you know, we, we think that he's going to be neurologically devastated if we don't do this. If we do the surgery, then the child will probably have, you know, some form of recovery. We're not really sure what it is. I can't imagine being the surgeon to have that first conversation. That person, I don't know who did it, but it was a very uh, courageous thing to do and a very courageous set of parents. But... Uh, we learned that if you get there before the age of two and do it, um, the, 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 the child will recover uh, almost entirely. After you hit the age of about six, no bueno. Can't do that anymore. Uh, then you end up basically like an adult. Uh, and the reason for that is that the, the, the developing brain has so many redundancies that are pruned out over the course of childhood uh, that uh, once that brain is pruned and really primed and ready for learning and the rest of development into adulthood, uh, they've lost that capacity for amazing uh, plasticity and compensation. So uh, 155,000 TBIs amongst older people, um, and the leading cause of death in the ages of 1 to 45. So this is a huge, big big deal. Every time you see someone taking a walk with a ribbon around their arm and they're walking for something, ask them if it's TBI because I guarantee you it's not. And it's not the leading cause of death in ages 1 through 45. Uh, I'm going to shift gears very quickly and talk a little bit about how we've learned about how to manage TBI. So how, how do you um, get a population of people who are highly at risk of sustaining a TBI, well, you could go coach a football team or you could go to, go to war. And this is a great quote from Hippocrates. Uh, he who wishes to be a surgeon should go to war. It's an unfortunate truth. And the history of the treatment of TBI kind of follows the history of the major conflicts that we've been in in the last 50 years. So it starts with the Korean War, where... Uh, helicopter evac units became um, be really became possible because of the proximity of the front line to the battlefield and to uh, these forward operating base hospitals. And for the first time, we were able to actually evac folks with head injuries and get them out of the battlefield. And we realized that the faster we can get these people out of there and stabilized in a medical setting, the better they would do. So that's kind of could have predicted that. Then we fast forward to the Vietnam War, and um, we see a large population of soldiers who have sustained these intracranial bullet wounds and survived. And 
the part of the reason for that is that the helmet technology improved, and so it would slow down the bullet as it went in to the point where the, the patient would survive. Um, this is an x-ray of a skull with a bullet in the middle of it. Um, and this is actually a patient who survived and went on to have a relatively normal life. So we became much more um, attentive to how these patients were doing, and it became uh, the medical practice to try and gather data systematically and try and refine the care so that we could improve the outcomes of these folks. Um, at the same time, we were developing all kinds of new and interesting and cool imaging techniques. So x-rays were being uh, widely uh, adopted at that point for um, skull and vascular imaging. So we were able to actually look at roadmaps of the vessels. And we started asking the question, um, what should we do with these folks? You know, if they come in and they have uh, a big bullet wound and there's all kinds of tissue that's been, been injured, how much of that tissue should we remove? How much should we leave? Is it better to just wrap them up and leave them alone? Or is it better to try and remove everything that looks dirty and try and make it as clean as possible? We didn't know the answers to these questions. And so in Vietnam, the, the trend was very much toward removing a lot of the, uh, of the injured tissue and try and getting everything as clean as possible. Uh, fast forward to uh, the Lebanon conflict. Uh, that is significant because the invention of CT scans, of CAT scans, was at the same time. And so suddenly we had the ability to reconstruct in three dimensions what the, what the patient's brain and skull and uh, uh, anatomy looked like. Before this, we didn't have any three-dimensional imaging. We were just looking at x-rays, which looked like that. So you can, you can figure with that x-ray, it's quite hard to figure out where that bullet is. You know, that bullet looks like it's right in the center, but it could actually also be in the scalp right over that right side of the patient's skull, or it could be on the other side. And so, you know, they would be able to localize it by shooting another x-ray in this dimension from front to back, and then they could figure out, you know, the x-coordinate and the y-coordinate, and they can go and try and figure this stuff out. But um, you don't want to have to get out your graph paper in the OR as you're trying to find where the bullet is. You want to have a very clear idea of where it is and what structures it's close to. So that's what CAT scans allowed us to do. Now we fast forward to the Iran-Iraq war. And um, you see a lot of these vascular injuries again. This is a picture of an angiogram. Uh, this is a much more modern uh, angiogram. So this is being done with a fluoroscope. And what is that picture of? That's a picture of um, all the vessels inside of a patient's brain. So if we're looking at the patient from the side and we inject some dye, some, some uh, contrast agent into the vessels, and then that contrast agent gets pumped up with the blood through all the vessels of the brain, and then we shoot an x-ray, and we can capture exactly what that roadmap looks like. So at the bottom there, that big black vessel is the carotid artery, and then um, as the vessels branch and fan out, you can see how they kind of encompass the whole side of that brain. So this is a, an overview of everything. I put this up here predominantly to illustrate how things have changed. So in World War I, aggressive debridement, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, still aggressive removal of injured tissue. Then we started uh, having CT scans. We started being a lot more conservative with how much tissue we removed. And by the time we got to uh, the, the Iraq War, 
uh, things had really changed a lot. And so we realized at that point that the best thing we could do was nothing. We could seal things up, try and get a watertight closure so that no spinal fluid was leaking out, maybe anything that was obvious that we could remove easily, go for it, but going in and digging around in there is not going to do anybody any favors. This is the surgery that we typically do for a traumatic brain injury, and this is um, the same kind of surgery that you received, Peter. So, um, again, it's it's this craniotomy. We did an incision over the right side of of, of Peter's head. This is a left side patient. There's, you can see in the red, there's that inc- the incision of the skin. So this red line is where you cut on the skin. And then we cut a bone window out around there. And here you can see the dura underneath um, after the bone has been removed. So TBI is a big deal. And it's a phenomenally complex thing because the brain is the single most complex organ in the body. So when we refer to traumatic brain injury as a single, a single uh, entity, it's, it's a real gross oversimplification, and it doesn't do justice to what is actually a phenomenally complex set of diseases. So these six uh, CAT scans from six different patients are um, all considered TBI, and they're all totally different. So let me go through them. This one is a epidural hematoma. So this is a blood clot outside of the dura. It's not inside the brain. It's not even inside the dura. It's outside the dura between the dura and the skull. And the cure for this is surgery, plain and simple. This here is a, uh, is a, is a bruise inside the brain. It's a contusion. And you can see here the blood is inside the brain. It's not outside the brain. So the cure for this is no surgery and watch support them in the ICU. Totally different. This is what we call diffuse axonal injury or a shearing injury in the actual cells of the brain. So if a patient gets shaken really badly, you hear about this with shaken baby syndrome, when the brain gets twisted and contorted, the neurons, which are long, thin fibers, can get cut. And even though the brain in this CAT scan looks pretty normal, the wiring inside of it has all been cut. And so the, the patient is basically comatose. Nothing we can do about this with surgery, medications. No amount of ICU care is going to bring them back. Um, this is a patient who has a complex subdural hematoma on the, on the left side of their brain. Uh, the cure for this is surgery plus ICU care. This is a subarachnoid hemorrhage, so this is blood around the brain. Again, not in the brain, but very close to the surface of the brain. And this is diffuse brain swelling. And you can see on, on this lower right corner, all of the uh, all of the sulci and gyri, those little markings around the surface of the brain that make it look like a, like a wrinkled raisin, uh, are not visible. It looks like a, a gray blob. And what does that say? That says the brain has swollen, kind of like that picture I showed you in surgery. Uh, and all of those markings have been lost. Six totally different diseases, all under the marking of TBI. This is a, a slide which kind of shows where people's 
brains usually get bruised in an accident, so it usually happens along the front and the temporal lobe. Um, the top of the brain can also get injured, um, but those are the most common locations of injury. It's kind of on the front there and on the sides. This is an, uh, a gross pathology specimen of what it looks like when a patient's had that. This is one of those intracranial hemorrhage patients, so blood inside the actual brain as a result of a, of a trauma. It's relatively, relatively rare. It only happens about 15% of the time, and sometimes it can happen in, de, in a delayed fashion. Here you can see the blood actually inside the tissue of the brain. This is in the temporal lobe. And then this is that diffuse axonal injury. This is what I was talking about with the shaking brain where the wires actually get cut. This is a picture. This is an MRI, actually. And it, you see these little black dots here and there and here and here. You see a few more on this side, and you see some here. You see a couple back here also. Each one of these little black dots represents a tiny focus of bleeding from the tiny little capillaries inside the brain. And that's a marker for that kind of damage to the neurons. This is kind of a picture of what happens to the actual neuron itself. It gets twisted. In some cases, it can get torn. And then in the most severe cases, it actually breaks. So how does this all happen? I love this video. <laughs> this is a man who was trying to be, uh, trying to demonstrate the uh, strength of the uh, material that he'd used to fix his car. And You'd be surprised um, how many awesome stories we get to hear about how people got injured. This has to be one of my favorites. He actually had a video of this, believe it or not. Let's just watch that again. He's okay. He's fine. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is on the internet. Um, so low-velocity, blunt trauma, um, Obviously, with a, with a baseball bat bounced off a car door like that, it's, you know, it's not going to be as big a deal. But in the same category is a fall from a high place. So that's considered low velocity because you're not in a car going at 60 miles an hour. And it's blunt because the, uh, the surface is you know, a blunt surface. So the types of injuries we see in, that, in those situations are these, you know, a, a bit of a skull fracture, a little bit of bleeding around the brain there. Uh, sometimes you can have very severe traumatic brain injuries from this kind of a, of a um, mechanism. This is an example of high-speed blunt trauma. Watch the truck. That I got from the Internet. So high-speed blunt trauma uh, obviously causes much more severe global injury um, it can cause injury far away from the actual site of impact because the brain shakes around inside the skull. And uh, you can see on this path specimen the kind of injury. It's, it's on both sides of the brain. It's on the top. It's on the bottom. It's, it's everywhere. It's a, really, it's a really terrible mechanism. This is an example of penetrating trauma. So um, this, I believe, is a guy who got a screwdriver plunged through the front of his skull. Um, 
with low-velocity penetrating trauma, again, you get focal injury to the brain where the object has penetrated. In that same category are low-velocity bullets. So when you have like the, the, the standard handgun, a subsonic bullet goes slower than the speed of sound. Uh, this is I didn't want to show a bullet wound to the head because it's too gory, but this is a ballistics gel, and you can kind of get an idea. They shoot the bullet into the gel, and you can see the shock waves, you know, uh, as the bullet goes through the gel there. So there's the primary wave, and then there's that secondary wave, which happens in the middle as the as the, as the gel kind of distributes and dissipates the energy of the bullet. So that's a subsonic bullet. Uh, as I said, that's, like a, that's a 22 caliber um, low-velocity bullet. Compare that with what happens with the AR-15, which is kind of the civilian version of the uh, military M4. So the, the, the gel doesn't even stop the bullet. It goes out the other side. And this is the same time scale as the other video. And you can see from the way that the gel is, is just going in and out and dancing around uh, how much of a component the shock wave is in this whole thing. So it's an enormous component of it, of the injury to the brain in this situation is the shock wave. And then this is a high-velocity, very large bullet. This is a 357 Magnum bullet. This was the Dirty Harry gun, that ridiculous 12-inch thing that he would carry around. And you can see, again, it just goes right through the thing. And... You know, this gel dances for like a minute and a half. I'm not going to make you watch the whole thing, but it just keeps going. So even within traumatic brain injury, you take the subset of penetrating, you take the subset of uh, gunshot wounds. You can see there's an enormous variety of severity of injury from that kind of thing. So this is a high-velocity uh, round that went through um, kind of in the mid-parietal region, and it went all the way across. You can see it went in here and came out here. So how do we decide who to take to the operating room and who not to take to the operating room? I mean, as a neurosurgeon, that's the big question for me. Uh, we have developed a whole set of guidelines. I'm not going to bore you with all the various measurements and uh, distances and things that we calculate. But uh, there are a lot of sort of very big picture guidance things that are, I think, useful. So I'm just going to talk about a few of them. Um, the overall surgical goal, as it is with medical care after a uh, after a trauma and after a brain trauma in particular, is try and keep the brain as normal as possible, try and keep the environment of the brain as normal as possible, and try and prevent secondary injury from occurring. So the primary injury is the injury that is that has occurred when the patient had, had, the, had the fall or the, the wound or whatever it was. Secondary injury is 
where the brain actually further is injured as a result of swelling or as a result of blood being interrupted or low blood pressure or poor oxygenation, uh, those are things that we can prevent. And so that's what we focus our management on, uh, is preventing that secondary injury. So what we look for are signs of elevated pressure in the head. We look for signs of uh, what we call a mass lesion or a large focus of blood or some other substance which is inside the head which shouldn't be there. Uh, This is an epidural hematoma. So on the right side, you can see this large, bright substance here. That shouldn't be there. It's pushing the whole brain over, so take it out. And similarly, we look for other large areas of injury which can be treated with surgery and and hopefully help to restore the normal intracranial anatomy. So this is a subdural bleed. Um, It's all along the left side of the patient's head. And you can see how it's kind of pushing the whole brain over from left to right. By the way, I I should mention in medicine, in radiology, all the left is right and the right is left. That's why I keep pointing to what looks to be the right side and saying left, because it's always backwards. That's just to keep things complicated. (laughs) And so here's a picture of a subdural hematoma. What are we measuring here? The thickness of the hematoma. And we're measuring how far off the midline the brain has been pushed. So this is not terribly complicated stuff. You know, this is fairly simple stuff. You can see it in the pictures. You can see that this is bad. And you can figure that, you know, if we took this thing out, that the brain would probably re-expand and it would be in a happier place than it is right now. This is what it looks like when we get in there. This is all a blood clot. And that has to go. All right, so with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you. I am uh, Peter Radovich. I'm the patient, I guess. I don't know. I'm I'm the guy that got hurt. Uh, Anyway, uh, Dr. Poor helped take care of me, and I really appreciate that. I learned quite a bit tonight from this, so if if I learned something, I hope you did. Uh, Let me figure out the keyboard here. Uh, did we do this video already? Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the first things I remember when I woke up in a hospital, or the first thing is that I, I can remember now from what Gambit Hospital was trying to figure out what had happened, where I was, um, what my prognosis was, all that. Um, and quite honestly, that took me quite, uh, like, two, three weeks to figure out before, uh, before kind of, I guess, accepting that this even happened to me. Uh, so not, not yet to the point of saying this bad thing happened. Now what am I going to do about it? It was just, Oh, I finally accept that maybe I'm not walking as well as I could or talking as well as I could or eating as well as I could. Um, which is always hard about these kinds of injuries for, at least for most people I've talked to, is that, you know, you think of an injury as like, uh, um, you know, you get a cold and a week later you get better. You don't get better from this. You get some better, but you always will have some problem. So that was new for me. Uh, I hope you never have to deal with it. But 
Anyway, this is my one-year-old daughter, and I'm having a phone conversation with her. I'm so glad that she was one because I couldn't talk. <laughs> and so, so she was very forgiving. Uh-huh. Uh, this was my schedule for every day that I was in the, the rehab, the inpatient rehab unit. And, like, for most people, it doesn't seem like that big of a day. Like, you know, 10 to 3 or something like that, not a huge deal. For me, it was horribly exhausting. Every day I'd come home to my room and lie down and just be shot, both physically and and socially. Like, like where after a while I'd just say, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to see people. I just want to sleep. Uh, so I did a lot of that. Um, uh, so OT, ST, and PT stand for occupational therapy, speech therapy, and physical therapy, uh, which I very soon became independently familiar with. Anyway, um, this was a picture of me getting my glasses back. And what was particularly nice about this is that... that uh, you know the world is already totally messed up, and you then see everything blurly, and that's hard. Uh, I got them back, and then found that I had double vision, and it was not yet perfect, but it was a lot better. So I was so happy for days. I was just like, it didn't matter. I, I could sleep in those glasses. Uh, moving on, this was the first time I went outside, and. Uh, I was in a wheelchair, but that was better than, than being inside in a hospital bed. Um, you know, when when you wake up in a hospital and you don't have any memory of what happened or who you are or where you're going, uh, having some connection to the outside world is overwhelming and exciting at the same time. Uh, I think there's more slides saying about that, that it's overwhelming and exciting. This was when I was learning to, um, oh, what was I doing this? Do you remember? I think it's, an, it's a form of speech therapy. So, so speech therapy um, involved, for Peter at least, um, relearning how to articulate. So he was like killing everyone in words with friends on his phone, but he couldn't make himself understood. And when he gets tired at the end of the day, it's harder. He had an Uber driver ask him if he was drunk. He was actually just really tired, but harder to understand. But another component of speech therapy are other cognitive acts, um, and, and they would test him on these the way a student might be tested in school. And this is him taking one of those tests. I, th- I think I failed it. Um, just for its worth. Uh, the next slide is me doing physical therapy. Um, the the uh, physical therapist there that you can see is actually uh, turned out to be a friend of the family. Our kids played soccer together and, and whatnot. She was very nice and patient and uh, very kind to my kids. I think I've got a slide later that shows my kids. Um, here, I, you know, I kind of, in this injury, there's no real easy way to figure out what to do. So you just kind of throw things to the wall and see what sticks. Um, and then sometimes it really isn't until a year later that you're like, oh, that's stuck. Maybe I should do that more. Uh, so there's me playing playing ball catch with uh, my middle child, I think. Older child. Uh, they were just tickled pink by this because Throughout this injury, as a kid, there's nothing they can do. It's just their dad's in a hospital. And so here, they can actually do something useful. 
uh, and and uh, made them happy and made me happy because figuring out how to connect with the kids has been hard. Um, you know, they, they just want their old dad back, and it's not always easy. Uh, there I am trying to cook. Uh, I love to cook before my accident. I love to cook now. I can't smell or taste very well, so it's a little exciting, but... Uh, so the the occupational therapy in the in the rehab unit had me cooking, and I, I I'm sure it was awful. But the nurses ate my food, and <laughs> I, I, I'm just infinitely grateful for that. It could have ruined everything if they were like, "Oh, this is awful. I don't own it." Um, anyway, <laughs> across the street from the brain injury clinic is a park. Um, and so I would often take the kids to the park, but as they started having Peter go out in the world more and more, um, they would take him over to the park uh, to try to engage with the children. It was a very overwhelming environment for him, uh, but it was one way for him to try it. I think this might have been a picture of him trying to push our daughter on the swing. And I, I think that one of the things that stood out to me about this picture is remembering that uh, oh, that that I was at the park at Tundway. Um, uh, I remember that I was at this park and finding that, uh, you know, I felt alien, like like that I was this person that couldn't talk and couldn't walk and just things weren't working right. And everyone else around was, like, getting coffee or, you know, hanging out with their kids or, or whatnot. Um, this was kind of my first introduction to my children's reactions to this accident. I, I was so focused on myself and how to get better that I forgot that maybe they have feelings too about this. And it was, you know, for me, it was kind of eye-opening to see my, I think then five-year-old, um, drawing these sort of horrible pictures. Uh, and how do you connect with somebody who is just really upset i i still don't have that answer um i do my best but i don't know if you want to say anything about this oh um, well so our kids have all done a fairly extensive trauma therapy and the two older are still see a weekly trauma therapist two different people uh, but who work together really well and that has been a huge benefit for us as a family and for us as sort of returning to parenting through the injury um because we will meet with the therapist as well, and at this point they know our family uh, extremely well. And this was probably the first image of uh, one of the children drawing what had happened, but they do it a lot now. Like, it's much more comfortable for them. But we went to a publication party at our uh, first grader's classroom, and he had done, you know, a booklet about his favorite lizard, um, and he had done a booklet about his dad's fall, in which he drew the whole thing. Um, and so it's a pretty frequent way of them working through the experience of having an injured parent uh, now. So, yeah, um, parenting with a uh, brain injury is kind of an adventure. Um, it's not going to work either. Uh, this one's not. Okay. So, I think there was a picture originally in here of, uh, of, of me doing <laughs> this next to a wall. And, uh, um, you know, it turns out that when you get an injury like the kind I had, that asking your partner or spouse to somehow handle physical therapy is a bad idea. Oh, I was not the the nicest of guys. I, I just put it that way, and and I feel 
kind of bad about that. Uh Just to clarify, so Peter did the residential rehab at CPMC, which you saw, and then they send you home for six weeks. Um, And they give your caregiver, um, and we've talked now to other uh, people who work with brain injured uh, persons in the UK, and the guy was incredulous, like, wait, your partner's supposed to oversee this? But uh, they give you a list of exercises, and there's someone who comes once a week, but you saw the schedule Peter had in inpatient rehab of, you know, six, seven uh, activities a day. Um, so it's vastly decreased in terms of external rehabilitation, and you're supposed to do it on your own. Um, it's part of a path towards building to your own initiative as the injured person so that you're ready for outpatient rehab. Um, which, uh, But in retrospect, I mean, we spent those uh, six weeks fighting horrendously about whether he was doing a push-up position exactly the right way um, and doing as many extra therapies as possible, like not, um, swimming therapy and extra acupuncture and massage, which he did really like, uh, <laughs> a bunch of other things. We were driving everywhere. I mean, it was an insane schedule because I had this clock of like the six months out of brain injury are really urgent. Um, I wish we had just taken a vacation that included childcare for those six weeks while Peter got ready to take initiative um, and go back to his own outpatient rehabilitation program. But, and I think that one of the things that, that is in my notes for this slide, even though there's no picture, is that it was kind of that the photo was the twilight period right between the euphoria of, of making it, of coming home, and and the realization that, oh, no, it's both expensive and really hard. And how do you figure this out, right? Because you're sort of compromised. And, and so you think everything's fine. And everyone else around you is like, everything is not fine. Everything is horrible. Um, so there was, a, there was some, some learning there. Uh, one of the things I realized very quickly was that, uh, you know, it's hard to balance this need for functioning in the world, like I have to go to work or whatever, and this need for sleep, right? Where all of a sudden I need to sleep more, but I also needed ridiculous amounts of stimulants to make it. And so I'd do this and then fall asleep at weird times, like in the middle of meetings, um, you know, at four in the afternoon, two in the afternoon, and, and it took me a little while to kind of get that figured out, how that worked. Um, if the deck was working, it would be a picture of me asleep. Um, but, but the deck's not working right now. And uh, um, well, so one thing that um, that the outpatient program is designed to prepare you for, if possible, is returning to work. Um, and they're really skilled in helping a patient know um, when the right time is. So it's a it's a kind of a negotiation between um, not so long out of your work that you don't that you lose skills, uh, but not so soon that you get fired. Um, and so Peter was actually very lucky in that his uh, he works in the computer industry. There's uh, in his particular role as a software engineer, there's not a lot of verbal talking, uh, and there hadn't been before his injury too. But so he was able to discover that a lot of his um, okay, uh, a lot of his skills in that area were undiminished, um, and he was able to return to work after seven months, um, which is very soon. Um, sorry, we can just go. Interestingly, over it. the. Uh, the the medical staff had said usually we don't have people go back to work this soon, but you seem to really need this for whatever reason, yeah, and uh, and really I was very fortunate in that um, in that the uh, you know 
my employer was the CEO is is ex military. He's very familiar with with these brain injuries as opposed to some other places where the CEO is just a normal guy up and I like get done with college and start a company. Um, <laughs> you know, like like many companies are these days. So. Um, I should, I, I should say, though, I remember him asking me, like, so the injuries are only physical, right, not cognitive. Um, so he was familiar with brain injury, but I think, like many people, wants there to be um, some very neat category into, into which you can fit this type of injury. Uh, and I assured him that, yes, the injuries were only physical because I wanted Peter to be able to go back to work. I'm still uh, not so <laughs> sure about that. Um, this, was, this was the list of things he had to be able to do before he could be discharged home, um, the first thought about this list is, oh, this is easy. I could totally do this. And then even months later, I'd go like, I shouldn't have been discharged. I'm not ready for this. <laughs> oh, you know, like, like it turned out that showering was much harder than I thought it would be. Or um, um, now you do my way through the bedroom in the dark to like use the restroom was fraught with peril. Uh, Included the occasional closet. <laughs> and, and the occasional closet. Uh, so this was, I don't know if it's, oh, it is visible out there, cool. Um, so it was kind of the first time in this injury that I had ever combined everything in one piece. You know, it was always, you know, I had this surgery or I had this injury, but it was never, I had this set of things happen. And therefore, this is part of why I'm behaving this way or part of why I'm feeling this way. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. That is a picture of me on my first return home. I'm just tickled pink. I mean, you know, getting stuck at the hospital for a while, you know, you love being there, but you love leaving too. Um, and maybe the staff was glad to see me leave. Uh, I don't know. Always very <laughs> so that's me sleeping randomly at, at our today. I found that I would, I would like, just be doing fine. I'd have a pot of coffee in me, and then 20 minutes later, I was asleep. Like, just why? Why does this happen? Um, uh, so reading with my youngest child here is just joyful because she had no way to really remember the before state. So, you know, what, what their father could do or, or act. And so I just had the chance to be me as I was then, as opposed to trying really hard to be someone I was no longer, could no longer be. Uh, so to me, that was really important. Uh-huh. This is the summer of 2014. I was at the beach in, uh, in like Concord, Massachusetts, very near Boston. There's Walden Pond. And, um, and what I've realized through looking at all these pictures that, that uh, one of the things that... that it's very hard is that people want me to be involved, and that's great. I want to be involved too, but I also spend so much time just trying to make sure I remain upright, remain safe. Uh, it's exhausting. And so, you know, here I am at the beach, maybe looking like I'm having a good time, but I'm just like relieved. It's just like I'm sitting down, I'm not going to fall, I'm not going to hurt myself. Uh, that's great. Um, here was, and I, this might be similar to what you're talking about with the craniotomy. No, but this um, is actually, so this right, is the this, second surgery. Yeah, this, this was surgery for where they, they place a shunt into my head, which takes out excess cerebral spinal fluid. Um, 
And it was probably one of the smartest things I ever did. I wasn't sure about that. And then all of a sudden, I'm not nearly as nauseous. My balance is way better. Um, you know, just in general, it was a really good thing. So, you know, even though I think after a number of surgeries or a bunch of time in the hospital, you're like, no, I don't want to do that ever again. I'm so glad I did that again. Um, that was about a year after um, or so. So we went back for this other surgery. So Jen somehow magically managed to have uh, like a, some life outside of this. I don't know how because uh, I certainly didn't. And I, I can hardly imagine anyone else as busy as she was making room for curating an art show. So this is like Peter walking a bit later after the shunt. So I still sort of walk like this, but maybe less badly. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it's hard to judge how you were before, where are you going to, if something's a problem or not. I mean, it's just you, you don't have a clue because it's been three years. So here is is me doing what I do a lot, uh, which is sit in front of the computer, um, much to the chagrin of the rest of my family. But one of the things I've found is that it's a place where I can use my brain, but not have to move around all the time. And so that's a, a big win um, in that I, I feel like I can do stuff as opposed to like the 10 minutes at the park and then I'm done. But I still have another hour. Anyway, moving on. There I am in a big meeting at work. Uh <laughs> My colleagues show me this picture about every other day and, and make fun of me. Uh, fair enough, right? Uh, I, I guess that's kind of where I am now. And it's like things are good, but not best. They're never going to be best, right? But they're good enough, and that's satisfactory to me. Uh, you know, would I want it to be different? Sure, but you can't change the past. It, it's done. One thing that we had, had observed and Peter has tried to, to express to you is that you know, there's this whole physicality to parenting. It's, we have um, you know, a nine-and-a-half-now-year-old, a, a seven-year-old, and a four-year-old. Um, and what they really want is that their dad is someone who can still pick them up and swing them around and throw them in the pool. And they recount all these stories of doing that in the past. Um, and so there have been these really beautiful moments where Peter has the energy and the space. Um, and it's calm enough where he can pick them up. And they're so excited. Um, and then they, each one wants to do it. So there's... They're, they've developed this repertoire of like, can you do all three of us? <laughs> um, which, which as they get bigger, really is harder. Hard. <laughs> yeah, but Peter's been the super sport, and we did have a picture of that, but now we don't. <laughs> um, but I think we're supposed to move on to yeah, the question, question phase of this now. Is that right? Yeah. Um, if so if people have questions for any of them. By the way, thank you all for coming out. It's it's really nice and kind of you. I'm paraphrasing greatly. I'm sorry. Um, the the question was as a in information technology. You know, you you tend to think very logically and very you know the, you know one box connects the next one connects the next one. There's not like anything crazy about it. Uh, and and did that help me? And figuring out what had happened to me and how to deal with it. And uh, I think that's right. Am I right, sir? Yes. All right. Um, so the answer is that it helped me dealing with coping mechanisms. So, 
you know, I write down a lot of things. I, I put a lot of things on calendars. Um, I have taken great advantage of the iPhone's reminder by location. So I could say, when I get to work, remind me of these 10 things. When I get home, remind me that I need to go to the grocery store and buy, you know, whatever. Um, so in that way, it's been hugely helpful. And I think maybe it's been logically helpful in that I don't have, like, as much feeling about, you know, this, this horrible thing happened to me, and what do I do? I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just done. Right? I'm like, well, this is bad. Now what do we do? Right? Very, you know, <laughs> a, a to B to C. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question or not. So, again, I'll try to paraphrase the question. Uh, so, forgive me if I'm wrong. Um, the question is, are there coping strategies that one can you know, develop? Because before an injury, you're you more capable in some way. Um, you know, and in my way, it happens to be as a technologist. As, you know, I imagine that you could ask a similar question to a sculptor or a painter or, or anyone. But... Um, is that is that about the so so I don't know maybe you could try well um, actually what this makes me think of is a project uh, in which Peter participated it's out of the UK and it's called Headway um, and we're um, in touch with this person um, who runs part of Headway East um, and it's uh, it's a storytelling project in which all of the different uh, brain injured people who come to the center it's a day clinic it, the parallel isn't really available to us in the U.S., but they write their own stories of what their lives are like after the brain injury. Um, And I can understand where your friend is coming from, but I do think um, even people who maybe haven't had uh, as as deeply an intellectual life before an an injury still feel an incredible amount of loss um, when they're faced with the injury. And the interesting thing about the Headway Project is that it allows um, the patients themselves, in the same way that this uh, this context has allowed Peter to talk, to tell their stories of who they are after the injury, to continue to have a sense of identity, uh, however different that might be. And, And Peter wrote a piece for them about relearning how to cook. Uh, after the injury, with you know, he mentioned the loss of taste and smell and some coordination um, that had made that harder for him. But that's a project that might be interesting, actually, for your friend to think about, um, to find value in what is still there. Um, okay. I, I think that to further expand upon that, um, one of the things I've done to cope, and I'm not saying it's that way for everyone at all, uh, is... is you know, I rarely think about how it was before. I just think about how I need to deal with problems that are facing me right now. Um, because I can't make it how it was before. I'm never going to. But I can deal with a problem that I have right now. You know, I'm not speaking well. I'm not, you know, walking well. Whatever the thing might be. So, uh, uh, I think... I'm just going to say one last... So, um... Thank you for coming tonight. We're going to end the formal question asking, and um, anyone who's interested in staying can stay for uh, some more questions. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.